0: Good morning. morning. Today's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn in unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, this morning we're continuing our series in Luke called Accomplished Among Us. So strange, he gives us those, right at the beginning of that chapter, all these details, historical details. Why do you think he did that? We're going to talk about it. But he wanted to show these things really happened and were accomplished among us at a certain time, during a certain reign. Uh, it's really impressive, important uh, Luke has really gone to those efforts for us. Well, we are in these next couple chapters. We are going to be given the qualifications of Jesus, chapters three and four to let us know that he is qualified to be the Messiah. That's what Luke is trying to do, to let us know that he is qualified to be the representative of all humanity, Jew and Gentile, as you even see in our passage today. But in particular, in this chapter, we're going to see John the Baptist, as you heard. And his purpose was to point to the validity of Jesus as the coming Messiah King. The King, the ruler of all. John would pave the way he's been talked about, and Isaiah prophesied. He would prepare the way. A couple of verses were quoted from Isaiah in our passage today by Luke. You see him coming up behind me. The first one was Isaiah 40. A voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And from 57, and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. So if Jesus is coming as the true king, and that is the image Isaiah wants us to get and Luke wants us to get today, what should our response be to him as the true king? How do you receive the king? How did you receive him this Advent season? How do you receive him in your daily life? Do you even think of him as king? Or if you do, how has that been in your life lately? Receiving Jesus as king. 99E is a mess right now, isn't it? Absolutely. All kinds of construction out there, isn't it? All kinds of things happening. It's getting torn up. And actually soon to be Ivy pretty soon too. You just have to look on... Uh, Facebook. Actually, I don't recommend doing that. But if you look on Facebook, it's pretty easy to see a lot of the complaining and can be about 99E. It's pretty much constant. Fill in those potholes. When are they going to do it? Uh, You know, different posts. Have anybody noticed how bad it is? Or then they fill them in and it's like, it's raised up. They filled it a little too much. People say, it's uneven now. They filled it in and it's uneven. You know, you just can't be happy. Or last summer I saw, I don't need to go for a carnival ride at the fair. I just drive on 99E. I saw that one posted. (laughs) Well, if we look at Luke's passage today, and we think about the ancient roads that were available to people. Or you think about the Oregon Trail. as uh, One of my daughters went on a trip uh, a couple years ago, and they went and actually saw parts of the Oregon Trail. Though those who traveled west on those roads, back then, they didn't have paved roads just didn't have them. Or the equipment or supplies to pave or fix a road. How were roads made? They were made by the repetition of people or animals or wagons traveling the same path. And by repetition, they were worn down. I think my daughter even said there's still like some tracks actually from, that you can see today still even from that were worn in, the grooves that were worn in by repetition. Um, the only people who built roads in the ancient world were kings. That's it. Kings. And only the real king of kings built roads, the emperor. That was the the king's way, the king's highway, a lot of them are called, right? They were the only ones that really built roads. And so when a king was going to travel somewhere, uh, the emperor was going to go somewhere with his court and his attendants and maybe his army, they couldn't fit down some tiny little worn trail. And so a king would send out his engineers and his his workers, and and they would go to the towns and villages and say, the king is going to come. It's going to be a great honor for your village. And so we need to really prepare for the king. And so we're going to be building some roads and we're going to ask you to assist. Nobody had roads back then. If you came to a boulder in the road, what'd you do? You went around it. If you came to a ditch in the road, you had to go somewhere to find a way to get around or over that ditch. 99E would have been a super highway back then. It would have been incredible. But now from John, we hear that the king is coming. We need to fill in the potholes, remove all the debris. The king is coming. We need a nice, perfect, smooth road. Because who's coming? Someone greater than David or Solomon. We need to remove mountains and fill in canyons for this king. The ultimate king is coming. Which means you need to treat him as king in your life. It's a great illustration that Luke gives us from these Isaiah verses. And so today's story, this little chapter here from John's message all the way to Jesus' baptism, we're going to see four road signs we're going to look at. We're calling today, keeping that road theme going. To check kind of the road conditions of your heart to Jesus as king. So grab your outline. Hopefully you got it there. And take a look at it. We've got some fill-ins for you today. Have your text ready. Whether you're coming to him for the first time today or you've trusted him and need to kind of check your life and see if his kingly power is there. That's what we're going to do today. So let's take a look. And to the degree that you have had these road signs in your life, to that degree, you will honor Jesus as king. And here's our first one A follower of the king has truly repented. Truly repented. After giving us the first couple verses here, this great historical context I mentioned up top for the work of Jesus. He's giving us the years of these leaders' reign and the names of these multiple leaders, which did a great job pronouncing because that was a tough one today. We are given a summary of John's message. And let's be clear before we look at his message. John was a prophet. It says there, the word of God came to John. That's an Old Testament formula that was attached to men and women who were prophets of God. The word of God came to John. Not just the powerful and elite, was he? He's a guy out in the desert who likes bugs. That's who it came to. But his message was simple and clear. Look at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Simple. Simple. Unless you repent, he says, for forgiveness of sins and only re- rely on Jesus, you are not treating him as king. That was his message. So what is repentance? It's an important word if that was John's primary message. What is it? Well, the crowds came out to him, we saw that there, and they hear his message and they say to him, Well, what shall we do then, John? What shall we do? And he answers them. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance in verse 8. That's how he answers them. And he describes there then after that some people who are generous and they give of their things and of their food. And he asks them to be honest and generous people and, and don't abuse your authority over others. And many people might have heard that and think, well, okay. Repentance is a change of behavior. A selfish person is now generous. A cruel person is now kind. And I would actually say, no, that is not the core of repentance. John is really clear here. Those good works are the result of. They are the fruit of repentance, he calls them. Those are the things that show and reveal that true repentance has taken place in a heart. The Greek word for repentance, uh, metanoia, it means like a change of heart and mind, a changing of direction. The behavior of that heart change was the fruit of true repentance. You might say, well, what is that? That's that kind of hair splitting. Does that really, does that really matter? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you can look pretty good externally. You can live a life of good works, and you know you can go your whole life and not have truly repented? It absolutely matters. Now, repentance wasn't the outward works, it was the internal state of change. The works were the fruit. Look, he says in verse 9, just to show you this is really true, he says, The axe is laid to the root of the tree of God's people, the root of the tree to bear good fruit. Verse nine, to bear good fruit then, you have to change the root, the inside, the heart. Repentance is changing your roots. Psalm 1, the godly man's got roots dug into the ground, right? And to get the water of of the ground. Repentance is changing your root. Look here, the crowds, they come out to him, right? And he calls them. Jew and Gentile. They come out to him and he says, you're like a pit of snakes. <laughs> you're a family of snakes, he says to them. And he's not just being dramatic there or using hyperbole or, or exaggerating just to make a point. It's strange because they didn't come to stone him, did they? They didn't come to arrest him. They came to be baptized, really, like obey. And he calls them a family of snakes, they come to obey and he says, "You're a pit of vipers." It's really odd. Why? Well, John knows, as we know, that from the very beginning of time of God's people, a snake has been deceiving God's children, hasn't he? The serpent, the Satan, the enemy. A snake has always been getting God's people into trouble. And by believing the serpent, the, the, our first two parents got in trouble when Satan came to deceive Adam and Eve. You probably know something about that story. And when he came to them, he didn't just come to them and say, disobey God, that's what I want you to do. You just, um, Disobey God, that's what I want you to do. No, he didn't do that. As if it was just, if he could just get them to commit some external act of disobedience, that's all it would take. No, 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 it's much deeper than that. As if the opposite was true, that would be then just repentance is just obedience. No, it was deeper. No, the snake came and said, He came and did something a little more uh, duplicitous. He said, you know, God does not have your best interest in heart. You cannot trust him. He went to the root. He went straight to their hearts. He didn't just come and go, hey, here's a rule, disobey it. No, he made them doubt. He caused them to doubt in their heart. He doesn't have your best interest. And so then they believed that God could not be trusted as king of their life. And then the fruit of that was the act, but it was much deeper than that. And so they believed their actions would give them life, Adam and Eve, not the king himself, but the actions of taking something that wasn't reserved for them yet. And so John is saying to the people, deep in your heart brews the same lie, serpents. The problem isn't what you're doing, but why you're doing it you come to be baptized he's saying to them because you think repentance is an eternal act of obedience you snakes and i say he said you need a new root entirely you need an absolutely new heart you need something deeper repentance you need to see you're a sinner you need an entirely new way of looking at goodness and badness that goes so much deeper than even just your church attendance or your giving or even of your time, like we've talked about serving today. It's so much deeper than that, is what John was saying to the people. It goes to the very root of who you are. The core, the heart, the Bible calls it. We talked about it before here, um, but I love the example when Martin Luther was talking about the Ten Commandments in a way that so much helps us out here. He talked about the first commandment, and you probably know that one, have no other God's before me. Why is it first? Martin Luther loved to say because it's the basis for all the others. And we do it all the time, actually. Anytime we put our trust in things or people other than God, our pleasure, our comfort, our money, our spouse, our kids, we trust these things in a way and put pressures upon them of ways of giving us hope and life that they were never meant to give. We end up crushing those good things, actually. But we internally want them to give us a little more satisfaction, sometimes, than even God, people, approval, career, family, finances. And and here's what Luther meant when he talked about the importance of Commandment 1 and why it is at the top. Because any time that you break commandments 2 through 10, don't lie, don't steal, uh, disobey your parents, or commit adultery, all the things, any time you break 2 through 10, you've always broken number one first. Do you get that? Do you make, does that make sense? So anytime time you do numbers 2 through 10, you've always, already put something in your life ahead of God. You already have another God before you. He said, that's why it's there. Something else is functioning in that moment as your functional God, your deliverer, Your savior. Take lying for an example. Anytime you might lie, even if it's a little white lie, if you ever lie in that moment, or if you ever have in your life, ever, I mean, yeah, I have. (laughs) I think we all probably have. If you ever lie in that moment, something is more important to you than God. As we know, he just says don't lie. Something, you've already broken commandment one. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's your job. That's a tempting one. There might be some people here that are going to face that in the future. Uh, called to lie for the sake of keeping your job, your marriage, your status, something in that moment has taken a precedence in your life. God is not king in that moment. That other thing is king, and it's causing you to lie. All right. Maybe if you're discouraged or down or anxious or worried or always angry, more than likely, at the heart level, in those moments, Something is more important to you than God, and it's being threatened. That's why repentance is at the root. That's why it mattered that John said, wait, 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 wait. Repentance isn't just obedience. It's not splitting hairs. It's the core of the gospel. Changes at the heart level. The lie, the anger, the worry, the, the sin is actually just really the symptom, actually. You might call it the surface sin. You need to repent, actually, of the sin beneath the sin, so repenting for the lie, sure, we got to do that, right? But you also got to go one step deeper and say, Lord, I'm sorry I'm trusting something else rather than you as king of my life. Do you see that? Sins are just the symptom. Usually it's something underneath that. So repentance has to go to the, what was it? The root, the root, the root cause. Because in those moments, you're not treating him as king. Your roots are bad, John, it says to them. The axe is laid to the root already. Your roots are bad and you need repentance. That's the first road sign. You see how it's so much deeper than the fruit of repentance, the good works. It's so much deeper. It's our first road sign. So let's look at our second. A follower of the king not only has repentance, but a follower of a king actually, now we're going to talk about it, shows obedience, the fruit of obedience, So while repentance is the change of heart, the root, it's also very important and actually a sign of true repentance that you actually obey. If you're a true follower of the king and you've truly repented, you will show obedience. Why? Because the king doesn't bend his roads to you. He asks you to bend your roads to him. You remake your roads for him. He is king. You need to adapt to him if he becomes the king of your life. We adapt to him. And there will be fruit, John says. It's not the main thing, but you do need to see fruit. You do need to obey. God calls us to obey. He is holy and loves holiness. What I love about John's ethical instructions, which begin kind of in verse verse uh, 10, Through like 14, there, not only does he give the general call to obedience, the general call to be um, generous people, kind people in life, giving people, he also gives specific examples according to the people's uh, job or station in life. Did you hear like tax collectors and um, soldiers? And then he addresses the Jews. He's addressing specific people. To the tax collector, he says, hey, be honest, don't steal. To the soldier, he says, don't abuse your power. Don't abuse your authority. And, and to the Jews, he says, hey, you better not count on your family status. You better not count on your family pedigree or your heritage as Jews for salvation. You can't do that. And I think what John is showing us here and the people at that time in his sermon and his message, he's showing us that each and every one of us, we each have our own kind of besetting sin. Or something that, according to whether it's our job, our status in life, our family—you know, our, our family makeup, whatever it might be—we each have kind of unique things we need to watch out for. Each and every one of us. You kind of know that. Some of us are more prone to anger than others. Some of us are more prone to fear and anxiety than others. Um, some are more prone to worry. Some are more prone just to uh, want the the admiration of others. We all—you mean—you might know your own kind of besetting sin, the thing you've been battling maybe for a lifetime. But many times we have blind spots, don't we? I think actually, we a lot of times we have blind spots, and we cannot see our own sin. And you know, if you think about it, all sin is really like moral insanity. We're really good at deceiving ourselves. Think of King David, a man after God's own heart and he's able to be deceived into taking something, another man's wife that wasn't his and going so far to murder. It's so shocking, isn't it? But it also shows the depth of um, self-delusion that we can give to ourselves with our own sin. We have blind spots. That's why we need each other in the church family. Do you know that's one of the reasons? It's the hardest part of church life and it's probably the one we practice the least in the family of God. But Proverbs gives it to us as just one place. Better is open rebuke. Proverbs 27 says, than hidden love. Think about that. It's better to be called out lovingly, gently, with the good intention, not judgmentally, but to be shown sin. It's better to be shown that than to kind of have this hidden, silent love, which I would say is not really love anyways. Faithful of the wounds of a friend, it goes on. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful wounds from a friend. I'm trying to think if I've experienced that even. I think, but... Not a lot. What's Proverbs saying? What's John saying? We need to be shown our junk. <laughs> we need somebody to point it out. Our sin. And I really honestly think, you know, um, I might get some flack for this, but I honestly think one of the primary purposes of marriage is that. To show us our sin. I hear it in a man out there. That's pretty good. It's one of the primary purposes. Holiness. Now, of course, I don't want to detract from romance and love and all the good stuff that come with it, right? But it's one of the primary purposes. Holiness. We're shown our sin. We've got to be shown our junk. And how we respond shows the attitude of our heart in those moments. How do we know? I love this. How do we know what it doesn't look like, what it shouldn't look like? We've got Herod right here, don't we, in the story? Did you catch him? Is that a repentant man? No. Let's look at him. Herod cannot hear the call to repent. John's given it to him. That serious judgment is coming for those who don't repent. John's language is really strong here. We've got fire, unquenchable fire. Somehow imagery that really is to make us think this is not a good thing to fall under, God's eternal judgment. The idea of the winnowing fork and the, the chaff getting blown away into fire and the wheat, the true wheat being behind, left there. He comes to Herod and he calls him to repent. And What does he do? He silences the voice of his critic by imprisoning him and cutting off his head. I think about that. He just can't handle being shown his junk, his sin, his stuff. That is not how what repentance looks like. How do you respond to criticism? Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? How do you respond to criticism? How do you respond to being called out for sin? Do you get defensive? Do you lash out in harshness? Maybe you don't throw your critic in jail, and I'm glad we don't. Each of us don't have the power to do that, but to silence him or her at any cost? Maybe. I mean, we've probably done that in our life. Has your spouse or a friend been pointing out to you for years a harsh attitude, or a dismissiveness, or a critical spirit, or anger, and you've just been unable to hear it? Why? Or maybe you hear it and you get defensive. Why? Or do you find yourself unable to say those little words? I mean, it's just like six words, but they're the hardest to say in the human language. I am sorry, please forgive me. Not, not, I'm sorry I made you feel that way. Or, yeah, I'm sorry, I just had an off day. You know, it's not really me. No, 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 it was me. I'm sorry, please forgive me. You know what's interesting? Even if somebody comes to you with a, accusation or wants to point something out to you, I mean, even if it's not true in that one individual exact instance, it's still true of you probably in some point in your life, right? I mean, even if you didn't, didn't get some angry with somebody or lie in that moment, like, I, I'm still an angry guy. I'm still a liar. I've done that in my life. So at the very least, when it comes, at least maybe start with oh, maybe. Okay, maybe. Let's talk. Start with at least a Maybe. And I also think, too, as I think about church lives. This is hard today, but John's a hard guy. (laughs) He's coming in with some really hard words. It made me think, why don't we hold each other more accountable in church? And I'm not saying be judgmental. And sometimes we take that and and we look at that. Well, Jesus said don't judge, and so that means we just don't talk about anything. We we just stay out of people's lives. But that's not actually what Jesus meant. Because he did say take the log out of your eye before you address the speck. He wants us still to address things in each other's lives. It's kind of a really misused verse in the Bible. And that sort of Christians will use to get out of actually the responsibility of having to talk about sin in each other's lives. Why do we not do it? I think first, possibly, of two reasons, our relationships maybe are not actually as close as we think. or as intimate as we think or as God expects them to be in church life. That's one reason. Secondly, here's another one. This is probably the more prominent one even. Many of us have our own idols of being liked. And we want to be seen as liked and nice more than it takes what what it takes sometimes to be loving. That's a big one. I mean, if it's an issue of life and death, which sin is? I mean, wouldn't it be unloving if John didn't go to Herod? Wouldn't that have been the unloving thing to do? For the sake, "Ah, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, it's going to be a little awkward. Yeah, it will. But Herod's on a path of unquenchable fire, according to John's words hard I know. Here's what John's trying to get across. John is to make straight the way of the Lord. He has a job to do. Quoting Isaiah 40 here, make straight the way of Yahweh is what the Hebrew says. Yahweh. Isaiah gets what's going on here and so does John the Baptist as he brings this message. It's really important. Something big is going on and Isaiah saw it and John gets to be the front runner of it. Something big. When Isaiah wrote that prophecy, um, when he wrote that prophecy, make straight the way of Yahweh, God's people had been sent so many messengers by that point. So many helpers had come along to try to help them. And none of them could deliver the people. None of them could do it. Moses comes, right? He's one of the first. And they're still in trouble. And then he hands it off to Joshua and the same thing. So then God sends these judges along and they come. Samson and Deborah and and Gideon and all these judges, they come. And it's still, they're in trouble. And so, well, then I'll send a king. David comes and David can't make them follow the straight roads either and make straight of the way of Yahweh. Here's what it means. The one who sent all the other helpers is going to come himself as a helper. Because all those other ones didn't work. Yahweh, it says, make straight the way of Yahweh. It's the same name that God called himself when he spoke to Moses from that burning bush. The one who sent Moses is going to come himself, in other words. And not until he comes will every roadblock be removed and everything set right. All of those other deliverers, all those other messages from those deliverers or the things we only trust in temporarily, those external deliverance, none of those will change you to the core. Only this will make straight the way of Yahweh. And if John the Baptist is the voice paving the way for Yahweh, what does that make Jesus? Yahweh. You ever want an argument for the divinity of Jesus? It's right here. Yahweh. It means Jesus is God. And that means you have to let him be God, king. When he comes, as I said, you adapt your roads to his. He doesn't adapt to yours. See, we love the stuff about, in our culture about God's mercy and love. We love that stuff. That stuff flies really well. Mercy, justice, love, and it should But when we hear that Jesus will come as a judge and throw everyone in the air, that's what they did with wheat and chaff, and the chaff will blow away and be thrown into a fire, we don't like that stuff. Other cultures love that stuff. They don't like the love and mercy and justice part. It's really interesting. Besetting sins for people, besetting sins for cultures. It's the same thing. We don't like the judgment stuff kind of in the West, in America, we just don't. And some, you might even hear today, you say, I can't really even accept that idea. I have a really hard time, maybe you say today, with the idea of God as judge. I got a really tough time with that. And we think, we've got God figured out. I just can't think of God that way. Do you know if if that's you today, you haven't come to God as king yet. You haven't come to him as king. You know what's king for you? Your culture, probably. Because that's our biggest, that's the one we struggle with the most. The idea of a judging God. Because other cultures are fine with that. They're totally fine with the idea of judging God. They struggle with a love and merciful God and a forgiving God. Or maybe you don't say that out loud, or maybe you're not saying that in your heart today, but maybe you get angry at God because you feel like you've obeyed Him a lot in 2022, and yet it was a mess of a year, wasn't it? (laughs) But now He's let this terrible thing come into your life. And if that's what your obedience is to get the things of God, that's actually not obedience. You're saying to God, if that's you today, I have my roadmap. I know the way my life is supposed to go. And if you lay that kind of road for me, God, yeah, I'll obey you. That's not obedience, is it? If you see him as Yahweh, Jesus, the king, we are ready to follow him regardless of what he brings into your life. He lays the road, not you. I'm not saying that's easy. I know it's really hard and that's why we need each other. He is God. Let him be God by obeying him. That's our second road sign. Let's look at the third. So the first was repentance. The second was obedience. The third, a follower of a king rests in the king's work. And this is good news that this follows on the heels of obeying well. Doesn't mean we dismiss that. But this can get to our hearts a little bit. A follower of the king rests in the king's work. What's incredible about John's call to repent and be baptized is that it's actually really shocking, and it would have been shocking to the audience at that time, that what's incredible is that it goes out to everyone in that moment, and this shocked them in two ways. The well, first was this one. The, the, the Jews at that time, they would have known about baptism, they had some ritual cleansing, uh, but baptism was a lot at that time for a proselyte, a converting Gentile to Judaism, and they would be baptized. Why? What does baptism uh, symbolize? You're dirty. You need to get clean. Gentiles be baptized because they're bad people. They're the bad ones. Wash and cleanse and be brought in to God's people. They were doing bad things and a symbolic, baptism was a symbolic act that you stink. You need to clean up. They were the ones who stink. They weren't fit to be a Jew. It's part of that conversion from Gentile to Judaism. I mean, it's the same in our time in some ways. If you think about it, if you're going out for a big night to an, or to an important meeting or a wedding or something like that, what do you do? You take a shower. <laughs> you clean yourself up a bit. You make yourself presentable. The Gentiles knew they needed this. Who's coming? Tax collectors, soldiers, I mean, people that know they need it. They know it. But John comes and says, everybody in the pool, <laughs> everybody, all of you need baptism. They can't believe it. And he's not picking on Jews here. He's not. He says to me, you know, it, it doesn't matter your status, your family line, whether you are a Jew of Abraham. He says, that doesn't matter. It's for everyone because everyone is lost, Jew and Gentile. And who comes? We see it there. Tax collectors, soldiers, people who know they need it. They need forgiveness. What John is saying there, you all need it, is that each and every one of us, you can rest from your righteousness. You can relax. Everybody needs it. No one is good enough to earn it on their own. Everyone needs this baptism of forgiveness and repentance. It's good news, actually. It's good news. Here's the second thing John says. Not only is it for all, but it's something you've got to receive. It's something that in some way has to be given to you. You must be baptized. For Gentile proselyte baptism, it was a baptism the Jews didn't need, but it was a baptism that really could be self administered. As history records, they took a bath. The first time in history, John is saying, you have to receive your baptism from someone else. Everything about this has to be received, he's saying. It's not something you can do. You have to be, receive, take it. He's the first prophet in 400 years. And they know it, they get it. He is like an Old Testament prophet. And I get I bet at this time why this is so shocking to them because everybody was thinking, you know, wow, it's been 400 years since thus says the word of the Lord has happened. That's a long time. Think about that. 400 years of silence and now finally the old order is going to be restored. This is excellent. We finally have a prophet again. The prophet, the priest and the king, we're back. We're back. And here he comes and says, all must be baptized. You can't do it yourself, and really it doesn't do anything on its own anyways. (laughs) Good news? I don't know. Wow, good news. But it actually is good news because it's the gospel. It means that empty external religion doesn't work. It can't save you. Someone else must save you. That's why it was good news. They didn't receive it that way, obviously, Herod, right? But you must receive it. It means you can rest in it. That's the third sign. You rest in it. John says, look, look at what he says in verse 16. He says, I'm resting so much. He just It's flat out. He's so um, transparent and vulnerable here. He just says, I'm resting so much that I'm actually not even the slave category of the one who's coming. I can't even be in a slave category, Do you know, John John was the greatest man that ever lived according to Jesus' own words. And yet he says, I can't even tie his sandal. It's good news. Your salvation comes at the hand of another by his work, by his righteousness. You just need to ask, receive it. Repent, believe, receive it. That is good news. It's the third sign you can rest. But even that's only kind of a partial truth. Think about this now. Because not anybody in this room, not anybody in this room will ever repent perfectly in life. We want to grow in it, absolutely. And we want to grow furiously in it. But I doubt any of us will ever repent perfectly. And I doubt actually anybody in this room will ever even believe perfectly or obey perfectly. So what is it? How are we, I mean, is it repent? Or is it obey? How am I saved? You see, even that attitude is not a resting attitude of just resting in his work. You rest in him. You actually can't even rest on the quality of your faith. If Jesus said the faith of a mustard seed, that's tiny. It's actually not even about the quality of your faith. How are we saved? Jesus. Jesus. We rest in him. And when you see the one who loves you, holds the world in his hands, and when he returns, every mountain will be removed, every canyon filled in, you rest. Because you know, you, you actually do look like 99E compare, now compared to what you will look like someday. You, we, you do look like that. So find pleasure in him. It's our fourth sign. Rest and find pleasure in him. So the fourth sign. It's the one that leads us to the table. John's story ends with Jesus being baptized. His baptism, is, it's not the same as ours. Why? Because he didn't need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Never had one moment in his life he needed to repent of. He's absolutely sinless. So his baptism is not the same as yours. He was baptized to fulfill all the requirements of the law, Matthew says, to identify with us, to stand in our place, to identify also with John's words about him. He was affirming what this man John was saying about him and to identify with the Father's words about him and therefore then to give us our identity too. That was his baptism. He was baptized as a confirmation of his ministry, his calling, as you see even there, the Trinity Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved And as he does, what are the Father's words? Look at verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son. With you, with you, I am well pleased. How do you imagine God looking at you? How do you imagine God's disposition towards you? You now, as an individual sitting here this morning, is it an angry father? Ready to condemn and point to you your greatest flaws every day? Is it constant disappointment, maybe like your earthly father had with you? How do you view him? Do you fight thoughts daily like I do that God could actually be pleased with me? Do you fight that? I I, I do. The table and Jesus' baptism point to how it is actually possible for God to be pleased with us. On the one hand, he was baptized, which means he fully obeyed God and therefore is able to be your goodness, your righteousness. We're seen in the eyes of God, not as hard-hearted kids, those who've trusted him, or sons or daughter, or a huge disappointment to the, the guy in the sky, right? It's not like that. But you're seen as the obedient son Jesus was. Because in that baptism, he fulfilled your righteousness. He obeyed so it could be applied to you in your repentance and faith. But on the other hand, the cross, the table, these two things point us perfectly to how God can be pleased with us. On the one hand, he was fully obedient. But on the other hand, he paid for your sin. Both, and it's the two sides of the gospel. On the other hand, the cross, where he paid your debt to sin by canceling our debt and then adopting us into his family. Do you believe that God can be pleased with you? Take a look at Romans 8. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You don't have to be afraid of this God, in other words. If you've come to him in faith, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and, and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's personal. That's intimate. That's oh, You're pleased with me because of him. I can feel your pleasure. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Spirit, do that today for us, right? Do that today. I want us to do this as we come to communion. And it might seem a little weird to you, but it's really not because the Scripture talks about us being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And there's something that happens when we meditate on truths. We're actually even at a biological level that heals our brain from things we've been through in life. I want you to imagine your mind right now. And really what you're doing is just meditating on truth. I want you to imagine God seeing you. Like you did Jesus on that day. Looking at you. Coming into this room, even right now, his presence. And if that's too hard for you because we know God is spirit and it's hard to think, we don't know think physical. Imagine it's Jesus then who does have a body. And he's there standing right in front of you. And he's saying to you right now, I'm so glad I made you. I am so glad I made you. And I am pleased with you. And I was more than willing to give my life for you. And I've done all it needs to be done to make you a child of the Father. So just rest and trust that. As our worship band comes forward and prepares some music and as our servers get ready, I want you to do that. It's really just the practice of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Imagine God saying that to you and prepare our hearts for communion.